Warning, the following podcast, which contains strong language and mature content, is unsuitable for children or for the faint of heart. The subject matter discussed will be frightening and graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. When you want to hear about the paranormal, you get the spooked girls. True crime that makes you hypothermal with the three spooked girls. Stabby snippets will give you dreams. Tara and Jessica will make you. Along with the spooked girls Bring on the slaughter We on that haunted ground The three spooked girls Hey spooksters and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara and as always I am here with my girlfriend Jessica. Hello. Hello. And today I am doing something different. I mean, I know we say this all the time, but we just keep doing different (laughs) things, I guess. (laughs) So as you can see by the title, it says probably like a year in true crime or something like that. Well, I, a couple years ago now, got a year in true crime calendar. It's a daily like desk calendar. Had really good stuff. So I got it again this year. And I've been pulling my favorites, and I thought I would read them to you guys because I thought that would be fun. But before we get into that, if you are new here and you want to hang out with us on social media, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our handle is at Three Spooked Girls. And we have our amazing Facebook group where we have book club gift exchanges a couple times a year, fun memes get posted in there, book club, all the cool things go check it out. It's Three Spooked Girls Official. We also have the Spookster Shop where I do tarot readings. Jessica does blind date with a book. And then we also do like crystals and other kind of boutique-ish items. My latest drop had some Mothman bookmarks and stickers and stuff. Super fucking cute. So everything that we are talking about right now is linked in the show notes in the link tree. So if you're driving or something, It'll be there for you. You can check us out there. And if you would like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com backslash three spooked girls. For as little as a dollar, you get one bonus episode a month, five and up. You get video content. You also get haunted grounds from me, which is about a cursed, possessed, spooky, haunted object, usually of some sort. And Jessica does slaughters. It's her movie recap series. And yeah, pretty, pretty fun stuff over there for sure, for sure. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's so easy to get caught up in what everyone else needs from you and never take a moment to think about what you need from yourself. Because if you're someone like me, you spend all of your time giving and it can make you feel leaving stretched thin and burnt out. But therapy can give you the tools to find more balance in your life so you can keep supporting others without leaving yourself behind. And that was something I worked with with my therapist the last few years on making sure to take me time and take care of myself as well as I take care of my family. 
So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. So find more balance with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash spookedgirls today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash spookedgirls. But with that, we're just going to go ahead and dive in. And I'm very excited about this first one. You have to tell them about the merch store. Oh, shit. Yes. Okay. Merch. So if you're in the Facebook group, you saw Jessica's greatest creation. We have the Papa Joe merch available to you guys. It has been approved. We have it up in the store. It's fucking amazing. Kelly posted hers in the Facebook group. So... If you are in the Facebook group, go look at it. If you're not, go join and then go look. But it is fantastic, fantastic. Facts on facts. You need to join and purchase that sweatshirt. Because yes. we are Papa Joe Nation. Hell yes. Oh my God, next year. <laughs> this is what next year, instead of like mm-hmm. sports teams, we should design. <gasps> we're team Papa Joe. Yes. That's our team. Down. As I say that right now, is all I care about is if the Kings win. <laughs> this is like the 27th so like if you're listening to this after which you will be listening to this after and you're like jessica they lost be like i know or they won (laughs) yay i don't know no i love it oh my god yes love it all right so gonna go ahead and dive in and it is got a great title it says assault with a deadly animal what no (laughs) Florida woman throws cat at police dog. The cat and the dog. Just just wait, just wait. And they have like a little paragraph or so, so you get to hear about it. I'm so excited. <laughs> and look at the picture too. Let me show you. Look at the fucking cat <laughs> that they put on there. <laughs> Freaking feral thing. <laughs> Sorry, huh. okay, that was really loud. This is funny. Okay. In January 2013, Lisa Frank slashed her boyfriend when he refused to allow her to use his food benefits card. Time out. Lisa Frank? Frank. Frank. Oh, like I was like, I. okay, thank you. <laughs> no, 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 no. Frank? Frank? I don't know. I was like, Lisa Frank is out there assaulting people <laughs> with cats? I am so excited. No, 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 no. It's an I. <laughs> She then fled into a shed as police arrived at the scene in Orlando, Florida. Police released a canine into the shed to subdue Lisa, at which point she saw fit to engage the most timeless of enemies and threw her cat at the police dog. The cat latched on to the dog's muzzle and police were left to their own devices to subdue Lisa, who by then had armed herself with a concrete trowel. What's that? Is that like where it's like the metal stick and it's got the cement on the bottom? Is it that? Oh, maybe. Oh, no. It, it You know those things like when you see them like smooth the concrete? Ah, that's, that's what, what it, is. it is. Okay. When construction workers listen to us, so they're just like, God, these girls, they know nothing. Or anybody who's handy. <laughs> they're like, sorry. They're trying to fix things with duct tape. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, she had the the little smoother scraper thingy. So, 
Then, some chemical spray and a second police dog later, Lisa was finally subdued and taken into custody. She was charged with the attempted murder of her boyfriend and harming a police dog. The cat was shaken, but unharmed. All right. I mean, that poor cat. For real. Like, it was Throwing just... cats? Yeah, it was probably scared. That's why it went in defense mode. That story was like a roller coaster for me because I went in like laughing oh at the God. fact that it was like a dog who got attacked by a cat. And then I thought Lisa Frank was committing crime. It was, no. it was a lot. It was emotional for me. It was great. It was great. Okay. So the next one I have is a survivor story. And it is about none other than Fran Drescher. From The Nanny. <gasps> the Nanny? Yeah. Or from her little-known movie, Beautician and the Beast. Oh, I've never watched that. <laughs> okay. You mean Bug? <laughs> Shannon can yes. watch it, too. I just don't think she would be, <laughs> and she'd like it. <laughs> yeah, she'll watch it. <laughs> oh, so good. Okay, so Fran is best known for her role as the nasal outgoing and fashionable Fran Fine in The Nanny. The television show she wrote and produced with her then-husband, Peter Mark Jacobson. I don't know if she wrote nearly- it. I didn't either. But nearly a decade before the series premiered in 1993, Drescher and Jacobson were the victims of a brutal crime while living in Los Angeles. In January of 1985, two armed men broke into the couple's apartment. While one ransacked the house and began loading their belongings into the car, the other tied up Jacobson and raped Drescher and a friend who had joined the couple for dinner. Oh my god Not that's so Drescher. right that's so fucking horrible oh my god Drescher's photographic memory and the artist's sketch made from her description of her attacker led to his arrest go you fran that's amazing he was out on parole at the time of the crime which he committed along with his brother he received a life sentence Drescher has expressed her gratitude at receiving closure Quote, which a lot of women sadly do not have, end quote. Drescher later survived uterine cancer and has written two books about her traumatic experiences and her triumphs. Wow. I need to own her books now. Right? I'm like, are you on Kindle Unlimited? No? Okay, we're going to do Audible or we're going to order it on Amazon. <laughs> no, I'm just like, over here, like my, I was oh like, my God. story. How can you? Couldn't you do that to Fran Drescher? I mean, I guess at that, like, she's always been Fran Drescher, but I guess at that time she wasn't, like, Fran Drescher. But still. Yeah, you shouldn't do that to anyone. Okay, so we have another survivor story. And also, fun fact, it's not always just one little page per case. They have weekly stories, which are usually, like, longer parts. And then this one is actually two parts, so it's two different days. So this is the survivor story of Paul Martin Andrews, the boy in the deer box. Part one, trapped underground. Paul Martin Andrews was on his way to the convenience store to pick up some milk on the snowy afternoon of January 11th, 1973 in Portsmouth, Virginia, when a man stopped him. The man introduced himself as Pee Wee and offered 13-year-old Andrews $3 if he would help him and his brother move some furniture. Andrew hopped into Pee Wee's car, but quickly grew uneasy. Pee-wee drove Andrews into the woods, told him he needed help lifting supplies out of his brother's deer box, an underground box where a hunter hides while deer hunting. When they got to the deer box, Pee-wee pulled out a knife and pushed Andrews inside the box. <gasps> the deer- Right? Like a 13-year-old, what the fuck? 
The deer box was four feet wide and eight feet deep. Pee-wee beat and raped Andrews three times a day for the next seven days. <gasps> On the eighth day, he shackled Andrews's ankle to the box and left him for dead. Part two, a daring escape. On January 19th, 1973, Andrews heard a truck driving by the deer box. He screamed as loudly as he could. A hunter came over to the box, pointed his rifle at the door, and demanded that Andrews come out. Andrews explained that he was chained inside the box, and the hunter opened it and found the boy, bloodied and bruised. Andrews identified Pee-wee, a.k.a. Richard Osley, from police photos. Osley had served 10 years in prison for kidnapping, imprisoning, and abusing another child, and he was due in court on another child molestation charge the same day he abducted Andrews. Osley was sentenced to 48 years for the kidnapping and rape of Andrews. In 2002, Andrews told his story for the first time at Osley's parole hearing. Osley's parole was denied, and he was killed by his cellmate in prison two years later. Andrews continues to tell his story in hopes of protecting children from what happened to him. Damn. That's, that's very traumatic. Oh my god. Whew. They don't play around with this calendar, man, I'm telling you. No. They put some... They, and it's like, what I like too is, it's a lot of like stuff I hadn't heard of, you know, or that I'm not super familiar with. So I like that it's not just like the stereotypical, like, you know, oh, here's Bundy. Right. I mean, of course, they're obviously going to include some of that. But it's like, I like that it's not just that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's good because then you get to hear other cases. Exactly. Okay, so they also highlight identified victims. So identified does. So this one is Beth Doe. In December 1976, some children were checking animal traps along Lehigh River in Pennsylvania when they came upon several suitcases containing human remains. A young woman between the ages of 15 and 25 had been murdered, dismembered, and distributed among the suitcases, which were thrown off a nearby highway overpass. One of the suitcases contained a nearly full-term fetus among the woman's remains. I know. Investigators chased several leads, but the case went cold and the victim remained unidentified for nearly 45 years. In April of 2021, investigators informed the family of Evelyn Collin that the remains in the suitcase belonged to the Queens, New York native who was 15 years old at the time of her murder. In 2017, Evelyn's nephew had uploaded his DNA to an ancestry site and kept his profile open in hopes that it would lead to further information about his long-missing aunt, which is exactly what happened. Shortly after she was identified, Luis Sierra, who had been her live-in boyfriend at the time of her death, was arrested for her murder. That's crazy. Damn. I'm so glad her she got justice, though, and her family was able to see that. I'm actually so grateful for things like Ancestry.com or like 23andMe because so many people are getting answers. And we did like, I think last year, the year before, I did like the one that had been solved. It was like the oldest cold case solved with DNA. Mm -hmm. And it was not even because like a a direct family member. Well, yeah, I guess the direct family member was, it was crazy. They did so much stuff. Right. So we have another cold case solved. This is one that's like, I think, a three-parter, but it is the murder of Irene Garza. So part one, the crime. 
Second grade teacher and former beauty queen Irene Garza left the home she shared with her parents on April 16, 1960, to go to confession at Sacred Heart Church in McAllen, Texas, which she attended daily mass. When she still hadn't returned by 3 a.m., Garza's distraught parents called police to report her missing. On April 18, the trail of evidence, including Garza's purse, her left shoe, and the lace veil she wore to church, were found on the side of McCall Road launching one of the largest search parties of the Rio Grande Valley ever seen. Three days later, Garza's body was found in a canal where her belongings were discovered. She had been beaten, raped, and suffocated. Any evidence her attacker may have left had been washed away in the time before her body was discovered. The crime was the start of one of the longest cold cases in U.S. history. Despite the almost immediate emergence of a suspect, it would be 57 years before Garza's murderer would face consequences for this brutal crime. Part 2. The Investigation Suspicions quickly fell upon John, I think it's it's F-E-I-T, Fate? The priest who heard Irene Garza's confession shortly after the last time she was seen alive. The evidence against him was substantial. Witnesses said he had left the church several times on the night of Garza's murder, returning with his eyeglasses broken and scratches covering his hands. Investigators also found his photo slide viewer in the canal where Garza's body was found. However, he was not initially charged with Garza's murder. Three weeks earlier, he had been implicated in the rape of a woman who was kneeling at the communion rail of another church in the area. That's crazy. Like, are you fucking for real? He was later tried for that crime, and after a mistrial, he pled no contest to aggravated assault and paid a $500 fine. After the trial, he was transferred to an abbey, then to a treatment center for troubled priests. He left the priesthood in the 1970s, married, and had three children. The Garza case would remain stalled for nearly 30 years. The Road to Justice it says the slow road to justice, part three, and this is our last part. So jump ahead. Where did we end off? The seventies. Well, we're gonna jump way ahead to two thousand and two. Oh damn! Just like whole yes. lifetime. Mm-hmm. They weren't kidding by the title. <laughs> They're like the slow road to justice. Yup. No shit. Two priests came forward to authorities and reported that he fucking John confessed to them that he had killed Garza. The technician who had administered his polygraph test also came forward to contest reports that he had passed the polygraph he took in the wake of Garza's murder. Dirty cops or test administrators, both. Bad, bad, bad. Documents showed the tests were actually inconclusive, though the technician assessed that he had failed. After a grand jury declined to indict him in 2004, the long-serving Hidalgo County District Attorney, Rene Guerra, was hesitant to revisit the case. In 2014, Ricardo Rodriguez Jr. unseated Guerra. One of Rodriguez's campaign promises was to pursue justice for Garza once and for all. Well, John was arrested in February of 2016 and convicted of murder on December 7, 2017. The prosecution asked for a symbolic sentence of 57 years, the number of years that had passed since her death. But the jury came back with a, with a life sentence in prison. And John died in prison on February 12, 2020. Oh, wow. So soon. Right? Like, Let me finish it. But I'm glad she got justice. Me too. 
It's really great when, like, these super-duper old cases, like, get... I know. Because it's, like, it almost feels like in those moments, like, the system works. Yeah. All right. I always love these ones. So there is an... We have another identified John Doe. So this is called the Park County John Doe. On February 11th, 1974, the body of Park County John Doe, a 30 to 60-year-old male, was found decomposing among the rocks at the bottom of a steep hill near Grant, Colorado. The male had died approximately four months earlier. No vehicle was found in the area and no identification was found on the body. In October of 2020, the Park County Sheriff's Office and the DNA Doe Project announced that the man had been identified as Anthony John Armbrust III an aeronautical engineer and the leader of a metaphysical church in San Diego. A metaphysical. Mm-hmm. Okay. Armbrust and his wife moved to Grant in 1973, and the couple soon went missing. Armbrust died from blunt force trauma and fractures sustained when he jumped or fell from the hill above where he was found. Authorities believe he died at the result of a suicide pact made with his wife who was never found. She pushed him. She booped him. She booped him and started a new life. (laughs) All right. So like I said, they do have obviously like serial killers and stuff in this. Well, we have a woman one. And I and there's obviously more in here because it's like the header has what it is. So like the last one I just read, it has identified victims and then said Park County John Doe. Mm-hmm. This one's women serial killers. So we're going to learn about a lot of women serial killers this year, apparently. Ooh. Yes. So this one is another multi-part. We have three parts. And it is The Legend of Lavinia Fisher. Do you know this? It sounds I familiar. Okay. Facts about Lavinia Fisher's life are hard to come by, but legend has it she was the first woman serial killer in the United States. While this claim is much disputed and has never been proven, it is known that she ran with a gang of highwaymen. The gang was active the first two decades of the 19th century, and it operated out of two inns, the Five Mile House and the Six Mile House, so named because they were five and six miles outside of Charleston, South Carolina. The latter was owned by Lavinia and her husband, John Fisher. The house served as a hideout for outlaws. It's unknown whether it officially operated as a hotel, but reports at the time claimed that guests went into the house and never returned. The couple's popularity and lack of evidence prevented any further investigation into alleged disappearances, although the law would eventually catch up with the pair. Mm. See, only back then are you going to be like getting away with other. Oh, oh, we like them. Never mind. We're going to just pretend we don't see this happening. <laughs> NBD. <laughs> Alrighty. Part two is the legend. Lavinia's murderous legacy is based on reports that her guests went missing. Over time, rumors grew elaborate. Some said she lured men to the six mile house and gently questioned them about their occupations to determine whether they might have money with them. She then sent the men to their rooms with a drugged cup of tea, and John would follow them to finish the job. This reminds me of that that family I told you about. Yeah, I, remember this actually sounded, the bloody benders. Yeah. It reminds me of that. Yeah, 
I hope not exactly like them. They were a little bit incestuous, if I recall. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. The more fantastical version of the story involves Lavinia pulling a lever that collapses the bed as the men drift off into a induced slumber, plunging them into a pit full of spikes where they were perished. Ooh, I wonder if Hotel was kind of based on this. Oh. Lavinia's scheme was supposedly found out by a guest named John Peoples, who tossed his tea and slept in a chair by the door of his room after growing suspicious of the inquisitive Lavinia. A loud crash woke him up in the night, the sound of the bed collapsing, exposing the spike pit below. People jumped out the window and alerted authorities, who would soon come for John and Lavinia. Damn. (laughs) This is so intense. All right. Part three is the end. People's account, you know, the guy, his last name's People's account bolstered the crusade of a vigilante gang that was determined to bring the Fishers and their highwaymen to justice. David Ross, one of the vigilantes, reported that Lavinia choked him and rammed his head through a window, but he managed to escape. Lavinia and John were located and arrested, as were two of their fellow highwaymen. John tried to protect Lavinia during his arrest and questioning, but it was all for naught. Both were convicted of highway robbery, a capital offense. Housed together at the county jail, they attempted to flee once, but the bed sheet rope broke before Lavinia could make use of it, and John wouldn't run without her. Lavinia followed John to the gallows. She died by hanging on February 18th, 1820. Interesting. Damn. Right? You want to hear a child criminal? Yes. Okay. I like child criminals because I mean, not all of them, but some just, of them are, like, funny, like, when it's, like, little kids that, like, run, like, street oh, gangs. this is from the 1800s. Oh. This is from the 1800s, too. Please be a child who runs a street gang. <laughs> all right, so this one is on Jesse Pomeroy, the boy fiend. So, Jesse first began attacking and torturing children in the Boston, Massachusetts area in 1871 when he was just 12 years old. After a brief stint in reform school that ended in early 1874, he realized a good way to keep his victims quiet was to kill them. In March of that year, 10-year-old Katie Curran disappeared after being seen with Jesse. Curran's body was later found in the basement of his mother's dress shop. Oh. Yeah, so he just, like, took it to mom's work and was like, I'm gonna put her body down here. Like, oh my god. And also, did nobody notice what he was doing? I guess not. What the fuck? On April 22nd, the badly mutilated body of four-year-old Horace Millen was found on the marsh of Dorchester Bay. Police suspected Jesse and found him with the blood-stained knife and mud-covered shoes that match footprints found at the murder scene. He was tried only for the murder of Millen, found guilty, and sentenced to death by hanging. But William Gaston, the then governor of Massachusetts, commuted the sentence to life in prison because of his age. He spent 55 years in prison until his death in 1932. Forty of those years were spent in solitary confinement due to Jesse's knack for fashioning tools to use in his many escape attempts. Jesse. Yeah. 40 years? That is so cruel. That's insane, right? Now there's, like, laws, like, on how long you can be in solitary. Right. Unless you're someone like Dennis Rader, which then kind of have to, because no one can trust you. 
right. All right. Well, we're going to end this with one more, one more before we go, guys. And it's a jewelry (gasps) heist or jewel heist. It is said the titles, the jewel heist of the century. So get ready. Century. Well, this happened in 1963. So the 20th. 20th. Yeah. Okay. The jewel heist of the century. Part one, the window of opportunity. In 1963, a jewel heist occurred every 32 seconds, with thieves collectively racking up a whopping $41 million in gems by year's end. How do they know My that? My brain hurts. Know. That's not math. That's right. <laughs> that doesn't seem right. <laughs> the golden age of jewel heists would continue through the mid-60s, with the most notorious occurring on October 29, 1964 when the thieves broke into the American Museum of Natural History in New York City and made off with jewels valued at $410,000, equivalent to $3 million today. Among the gems were the Star of India, the DeLong Star Ruby, and the Eagle Diamond. None of the 24 gems stolen were insured. What? That seems like poor planning on the Natural History Museum. The fuck? At the time, the museum's burglar alarm was inactive, of fucking course, and all of the windows in J.P. Morgan Hall of Gems and Minerals were left open two inches for ventilation. There was no overnight security guard, and as the thieves discovered when they reached the display cases, there was no active alarms on them. Museum officials later reported that the alarm batteries had been dead for months. The thieves made off into the night, seemingly executing the perfect and perhaps easiest jewel heist. But part two is called The Mistake. (gasps) The Mistake. (laughs) The three men who had planned and orchestrated the heist hid out at the Cambridge House Hotel. The staff there became suspicious of the lavish parties the men were throwing and tipped off authorities. The men were arrested on October 31st, 1964. Alan, Roger, and Jack, (laughs) whose Jack's name is Murph the Smurf, because his last name was Murphy. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Murph the Smurf. (laughs) They were charged with first-degree burglary and possession of burglary tools. The three remained free on bail, but a few months later, after further charges were brought against Alan and Murph the Smurf for an unrelated assault and robbery of, oh my god, of actress Eva Gabor. Sister of Zaza. Yeah, I was like, I was like, Eva. I was like, I know Shaja. Uh huh. Alan offered to retrieve the jewels in return for a lighter sentence. Of the 24 pieces stolen, all were recovered except the Eagle Diamond, which was never found. The 16.25 carat stone was likely cut into smaller stones and sold. In April of 1965, all three men pled guilty to burglary and grand larceny. They each received three years in prison. That's a really short sentence for a heist at that value. Jesus. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, I feel like that's a good one to end the episode on just with all the dramatics and kind of a little bit. I don't know. I feel like a jewel heist is like more the lighthearted side of Crime. Yeah, because these like this episode started really funny. <laughs> these were intense. Yes. With the dog cat and then thing. Got intense. And then mm-hmm. the next one it was like, oh God. Yeah. Roller coaster of emotions. Yes. <laughs> but 
So we will go ahead and wrap things up for today. You guys let me know if you liked that. I I thought it was interesting because it was very different than like what we normally do on main episodes. So I liked it. I was like, you know what? I liked it. It was fun. I'll do it again if you guys want me to. Just let me know. But anyways, with that, we're going to go ahead and sign off and we'll see you back here on Thursday. Bye, guys. Toodles.